If you haven't met me before, if you came in after the service began, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at this church. And this morning, at this point in the service, we get to do what really is one of the greatest privileges that we ever get to do, and that is to open up a book. A book where we hear from God's voice directly. Where we read God's words that were penned by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit of of God. And today we're going to be opening up, boy oh boy, to the book of Romans. The book of Romans chapter 8. Boy oh boy. The book of Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 32. And if you know if you know the New Testament, you know this is, this is quite a passage. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al libro de Romanos, capítulo 8, versículos 28 a capítulo 32. In the last three weeks, we have spent in the book of Habakkuk, and Jason has served us well. As we've seen through Habakkuk and been reminded and taught that God is good, even when we don't understand, even when we don't See, even when we're confused about the circumstances that we're in the midst of, he's good. And he gives us the kind of feet to be able to secure, to secure our steps on even the most precarious of cliffs. He, he latches our faith onto the immovable goodness of his character. But, but there's still more for us to learn. And as we as a pastoral team discussed how to move on from this, we decided to delay our beginning of the book of Ephesians for just a few more weeks because we believe there is more goodness to be had in, in considering God's goodness in the midst of our suffering and trials. And here's the thing. Habakkuk, Habakkuk was looking forward to something. We're looking back on something. And that something is the hinge point of history, the cross of Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, it looks back. And the passage will be in next week in 1 Peter 2 that Jeff will preach from. It looks back on the person who was on that cross. But today, Romans 8, here's the goal. Here's my goal for you today, that you would leave here today, knowing how to face your future trials by applying the gospel within them. Knowing how to apply the gospel in the midst of your trials in a way that doesn't seem vaguely religious, that doesn't doesn't seem abstract and, and not actually practical for what you're going through, but no, no, is indeed the most practical thing you can do and the most powerful and wonderful thing. So, with that, together, listen closely. Here we go. Let's read Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, 
he also glorified. What then should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Fathers, we ascend the heights of this mountaintop of a passage of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us what you would have us to understand. You know that we could spend months in these few verses. We could spend days in single phrases. Lord, you have your intention for what you want us to know and to learn as a body and as individuals. Would you send your spirit to accomplish that work in us? Open our eyes, open our ears, enlighten our minds that you might accomplish the good work that you have ordained for for us and that we might be conformed through it into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God is good. We've said it over and over these past several weeks. And those who believe in him can dwell secure in him. The Bible, the Bible probably says God is good in 200 different ways, hundreds of different times. But here, the Apostle Paul says it again. And even he says the same thing in essentially three different ways within this passage. But here, here we see the goodness of God in greater clarity than we might have ever seen it before. Do you remember in the early 2000s when the first HD TVs were released? I remember a good friend of mine, his parents had just gotten one, and I was going over to his house. They just mounted it up on the wall. I was going over to his house to watch the 2003 Super Bowl. And we're sitting in the living room, and the TV's not on. They were going to do like this big, great reveal. And I remember sitting there thinking, I've been watching TV my whole life, and the picture's fine. I don't see how the picture could be any better than any other TV I've watched. But then they turned the TV on. And ever since then, not only was that a stunning moment to see such clarity on the screen, ever since then, you, you ever go back and, and, and look at old tube TVs and look at the picture? It looks grainy and blurry and pixelated, doesn't it? And you, you wonder, how in the world did I ever look at this? How, how could I see a, a, a sports game, sports ball game competition, any other way than how I see it now. And that's how, once you've read this passage of Scripture, you read, you read passages like the book of Habakkuk completely differently. You see it in light of what is revealed here. And, and listen, maybe you think your understanding of God's goodness is just fine. You don't need to see it any more clearly. But this passage, it puts God's goodness toward you you in high definition in the midst of your trials and sufferings. And and, and you will see a blurry, pixelated vision 
of His goodness apart from what's revealed in this passage. This passage, my goodness. <laughs> I was talking to Jeff about this before Scripture. If, 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 I, were, if I were given the opportunity to to only have one passage, one chapter of Scripture to carry with me and to read for the rest of my life. I don't know if Romans 8 would be definitively the single, pas- or the single chapter, but it would be on a very short list. This is, this is one of the most wonderful chapters of Scripture you could ever set your eyes on. Why? Because it connects the gospel of Jesus Christ to the trials and sufferings of the Christian. Don't miss that. It tells us that God's gift of His Son is your rock-solid confidence that He is for you. Let me say that again. God's gift of His Son is your rock-solid confidence that He is for you. That's what Paul is getting at in this passage. So if you don't know what it means to suffer with the Gospel in view, get ready to learn today. If you don't know how to connect big theology to the small details of everyday life, this is where you connect those dots. The Bible says God is good in 200 different ways, but this passage says it in two different ways and then ends in verse 32 with the best of the best. So for the sake of a sermon outline, we've got two points today. Two points and then verse 32, which crescendos at the end. First point, God is for you always. This will be verses 28 through 30. Second point, nobody can successfully be against you. Which is verse 31, and really, actually, we're going to cheat a little bit, and also the very end of Romans chapter 8. God is for you always, and nobody can successfully be against you. First, God is for you always. Verse 28, I... And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I think most people who are familiar with the Bible are vaguely familiar with this verse, or at least, at least the phrase, all things work together for good, or some similar iteration of that, right? And there's very good reason why it's so well known, because there's real hope here. In, in that supposition, in that, in that suggestion that all things are somehow working together for good. Right? There's real hope in that, but, but there's also a real danger here. Because this verse is very often misinterpreted or misapplied. So we have to look at its parts and see each part in light of its context and the rest of Scripture to ensure that the hope that we're getting from it is the hope that it actually offers. So first, we're going to go out of order and start with the word good. Good. This is where most people take this verse sideways. Because we subject the word good to the authority of our understanding. 
We take the concept of good in our minds, what we think is good for ourselves, and we import it into Romans 8.28 and assume that God is working all things according to what I think is good for me. But if that were the right interpretation of this verse, we would all be driving much faster cars. We'd probably all be retired with a pension at age 30. Uh, We would all have our name in lights somewhere, and life would be easy, wouldn't it? Or whatever your version is. That's a, that's a vague interpretation of my version in my worst of times. But Habakkuk it clearly taught us that, that our idea of good doesn't always square with God's all-knowing understanding of what's good for us. And he knows. So we have to subject the word good to the authority of God's omniscient, which means all-knowing, God's omniscient idea of what is good for us. The second phrase we have to understand is for those who love God. And similarly, at the end of that verse, those who are called according to his purpose. Which means, those two phrases, they, they limit who this verse applies to. So too often, you'll hear people say, well, all things are working together for good. Or you'll hear somebody pat somebody on the shoulder during their, their suffering, whatever they're going through, and saying, it's going to be all right. But we have no assurance that it's going to be all right apart from Christ. And what all right means, again, has to be subjected to the authority of what what is good according to what God has said. Because apart from grace, we all stand under God's righteous judgment because of our sin. Friend, if you haven't repented of your sin and believed in Jesus, this verse isn't for you. there's good news. You can leave today. You can leave today with the opposite being true. You can leave as one who loves God and is loved by God, knowing that God is working all things together for your good. That can be true for you today. And for those whom this verse does apply, God is working your past, your present, and your future together for the good that he has determined for you. What do I mean there? Well, this, this passage, it really does describe what, what good means. He's working your past, your present, and your future. He's working your past. Look at verse 30. We have to go outside of verse 28 to understand what it means when it says he's working for your good. Verse 30 talks about our past. It says he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified. Those are things that are true of the past of every Christian. Every Christian is foreknown by God, foreknown into relationship with him, predestined, predestined to belong to him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Called into relationship, that what the Bible calls, or what theology calls, the effectual calling of God 
that, that irresistible calling to him and justified. For those who love God, you can know that he worked every moment of your past toward that end. Before you were a Christian, every moment of your life was working toward the good of that being accomplished. Even every moment of history, as, as your ancestors met and, and descendants came from, that, from them, were working toward that end for you. Your past, God has worked for your good. Not only your past, but your present. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also, he also predestined. Predestined to what? Ha, to be conformed into the image of his Son. This is the present good he's doing in every Christian, in every moment of your life. At the very least, you can know God is doing this in you. He is, he is bearing out the DNA that became a part of you the moment that you were saved, the moment that you became a member of the family of God. And verse 29 says, that so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's saying, you became a part of the family of God, you're starting to look like your older brother. Through your sufferings and your trials and, and everything, in fact, God is making you more like him. Increasingly so, until that one day when you will be fully like him fully freed from sin. And that's the future part of it as well. The future good that God is working for you. And look back, we're not in this passage, but look all the way back to verse 23, and 20, 23 to 25. Paul talks about the creation itself groaning under the weight of sin. He says, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to pretend that everything is fine and dandy in this world. When man fell into sin, God subjected the whole world to the futility of sin. And he says, not only is creation groaning, but we groan inwardly. And do you feel that? I'll bet you do. We groan inwardly. Look at the end of verse 23. As we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience, with the eager expectation that we will get it. We will get it. The final realization of our adoption as sons and daughters of the living God, the final realization of the redemption of our bodies. Bodies that'll no longer groan under the weight of sin. That day's coming. And in verse 30, look at the end of verse 30 now, go down. So you've got predestined, called, justified, and then at the end, glorified. You know what that means? It's talking about that day when you're in glory with him. God is working toward that future good. So your past, your present, your future, God is working good in all of it. Commentator Walter Kaiser says, the present realities of grace are but the first installment of God's gracious redemptive, act, gracious redemptive action in Christ. There is much more yet to come. 
just repeat that over your mind. There's much more yet to come. Again, Kaiser says that that good that Paul talks about here, that good is the final and complete realization of God's love. Well, we know God's love, but its realization in our existence is yet to be fully realized in the absence of sin. That good belongs to those who love God. Now, here's the third phrase we have to understand. The third one, and this is, a, this is an important one, it's two words in verse 28, all things, all things. All things work together for good. And here's the mistake that's made with this phrase. We tend to exclude some things from the phrase all things. You probably have at least one or two things that you don't put into the category of all things being able to work for good. Things that you struggle to believe God is working for your good. Maybe it's your singleness. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your California tax bill. How is that working for my good? Maybe it's something awful. I mean, something truly terrible like the the death of a child or somebody that you dearly love. And you look at that and you go, how is that working for my good? Ask yourself, what do I exclude from all things? And as you're asking that of yourself. Don't forget who wrote this verse. It's written by a man named Paul who wrote to another church about what he experienced during his ministry. He, ter- he told the church in Corinth in his second letter to the Corinthians that he was under great pressure and despaired even of his life at certain points in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He told them in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9 that he was pressed on every side. He was perplexed. He was persecuted. He was struck down. In 2 Corinthians 6, 4 and 5, he said that he experienced beatings, imprisonments, riots, and hunger. Walter Kaiser says, it seems clear that we have in Romans 8, 28 no armchair theologian. This is not armchair theology, just, just waxing eloquent about things that I think are right. This guy lived it. When he says all things, he knows what he's saying. He knows that this isn't just the good stuff and, well, the bad stuff, we'll deal with that later. No, he says all things. I understand what all things are. I got the same categories as you. If you're loved, by God, and you are called according to his purpose, all things are working together for your good, friend. And when you understand this, it changes how you experience everything. It changes how you experience all things. Now, I have to be brief about this here, and it pains me to do so, but look at verses 29 and 30. 
these two verses. Oh, man. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and we've already seen this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is Paul doing in these two verses? Why does he write this? Well, one, he's, again, he's saying the same thing in another way, but he's also heading off the argument that might be bubbling up in your mind after you read Romans 8.28. And that argument is, well, if he's for me, but he's not able to bring that good to pass, then that's no good for me. Because, you know, there, there are a lot of people who are probably for you, right? I mean, your parents may be very for you. Your spouse may be for you. Your best friend is for you. But at some point, they're all going to fail you, right? None of them can sovereignly bring about what is best for you in every moment of your life. So, if God is just the same, well, sorry to be crass or glib, but who cares? I got enough people who fail me. But here's what Paul says to that objection. If you are called according to his purpose, man, oh man, he's saying God, re- God elected you into relationship with him and then he appointed you before time began to a specific destiny. And that destiny was that you would be called to him, that you would be justified by him in Christ, and that at the end of your earthly life, you would be glorified to spend the rest of eternity with him. And notice, look at those two verses. What tense are all those verbs in? They're all in the past. Past, present, and future, all spoken of in the past tense. All of that is as good as done. your election, your predestining, your calling, your justification, your glorification to spend eternity with him, it's as good as done. Because of who did it and who is doing it. God alone is able. There might be others who are for you, but none are like God. None. God is working for your good all the time, and he's perfectly able to bring that to pass. I mean, how amazing is that? How amazing is that? And before we move on to the the second point, just a couple questions and a point of of application here. What, What good do you not have that you wish you had? Similar to the question I asked earlier, what, what good do you not have that you wish you had? What is that idea of good that's, that's subjected to your authority that you don't have, but that God hasn't given to you? He hasn't yet at this time declared it to be good for you at this moment that you're going, God, I wish you had given that to me. What is it called when we have that that experience, that desire. The Bible calls that discontent. Discontentment. 
And discontentment, it is, a, it is a beast that eats you from the inside out. The Bible says discontentment draws your heart away from the love of God and toward the love of, of other things or other people. And it sets your desire on those things and draws it away from God. The Bible says that, that discontentment is itself lost. It says that godliness plus contentment that's great gain in this life. You want, to, you want to gain a lot in this life? Pursue godliness and be content with what you have. If you feed discontent, that's loss. You're just aware of what you don't have, and you're just dwelling on what you don't have. The Bible says discontentment hinders your ability to endure trials. Paul says, I've found the secret to be, to be content in all things, how to abound and how to experience loss. The opposite of that means I, I've struggled to get through trials. I don't have that. So here's the point of application. Here's my encouragement to you. Starve the beast of discontentment. Don't feed that beast. Believe that God's God's definition of what is good for you is truly what is good for you. And don't feed that misguided notion that there's something good for you outside of what God has given you that you should have or you deserve to have. That's not going to benefit you. <laughs> and think of, think of times in your life when you have dwelled in discontentment. Have you been happy? Have you been filled with joy? Have you been led to God? No, probably not. Starve the beast of discontentment because you have a God who is for you at all times. So now, in verse 31, <laughs> almost comically, Paul goes, what? So what should we say to these things? Like, oh my goodness, this is, this is the best thing that's ever been heard. What, what, what do we say to these things, I think Paul would say, well, let's just say it again. Let's just say it one more time. That brings us to the second point. Oh, this is so sweet. Second point, nobody can successfully be against you. Read verse 31 with me. <laughs> what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And, and you now see why verses 29 through 30 are, are so important to Paul's argument. Because if this God is for you, if this God who is good toward those who love him in all things at all times, and he is, he is uniquely able to bring all of that good to pass, then who can be against you? If that God is for you, who in the world can be against you? In other words, nobody and nothing can successfully be against you. They can try, but none of them are going to su succeed in thwarting God's good purposes for you. None of them. None of them. And it's the same thing he said in verse 28. In verse 28, he said it positively. He said, God is working all things for your good. Verse 31 here, he says, nothing can ultimately be for your harm. It's the same thing he's saying. But you say, really? 
Again, really, and, and Paul, Paul's anticipating your objections and my objections. You say, really? I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe that. I can imagine some things might successfully come against me. And I can think of some things right now. Again, Paul knows that you might have this objection. And if you do have that objection, it's okay. We're all here learning together. So he says the same thing again in verse 35. Look, look down to verse, verse 35, just a few verses later. He says the same thing again as he says in verse 31 here. He says, who, who, rhetorically, nobody, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or even sword? Listen, these are some big-time potential against you things. These aren't like inconvenience and having a bad day and your coworker being awkward with you at work. Famine? Not having enough clothes to wear? The sword? Physical danger? And Paul's saying, Give me your best shot. If God is for me, it doesn't matter. Look at verse 36. He says, for your sake, we're being killed. So the sword, it's actually, it's actually happening. We're actually experiencing physical violence. For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It doesn't matter. Verse 37, and here he goes, Paul is... Paul is just elevating here. He says, no! In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is God who is for you in all things and is able to bring that good to pass at all times. For I am sure, verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is to say, nothing will be able to separate God's good intentions for us. And it's as if Paul gets to the end of that list and says, have I left anything out? Anybody have anything else? I think I got it all by saying anything in all creation. (laughs) He says, no. If God is for you, who can be against you? One more objection. And here it is. This, is. this is the objection of all objections. But how do we know that this is who God is? How do we know that this is what he's really like? And how do we know that he really is this good and that he's really for me in all things? How do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is true? That this isn't just, just the cosmic safety blanket. This isn't just theological musings from a, from a pastor who's been dead for 2,000 years. How do I know this is true? To this question, Paul carefully wrote Romans 8.32. He says, here's your answer. 
he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This verse is what John Piper calls the rock-solid logic of heaven. I love that. The rock-solid logic of heaven. He goes on to say, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the hard to the easy, from the almost insurmountable obstacle to the easily surmountable obstacle. Since he did not spare his own son, and that's the great thing, the hard thing, the insurmountable obstacle to our salvation, delivering over his own son to torture, to scorn, and sin-bearing death. If that can be done, then the lesser thing, the easy thing, will surely be done. His freely giving to us all that Christ bought for us. All things. That's the rock-solid logic of heaven. Listen, our dilemma, if you're wondering, was impossible. It was impossible. Our sin against God, for which we are all guilty, it, it earned us eternity in hell, and there's nothing we could do about it. There's nothing we could do about it. But God gave not good vibes or positivity. But God gave not a second chance because we would mess up every successive chance we got. It's not about getting a second chance. But God gave not a consolation to make our just punishment feel a little less painful. God gave His only Son. His greatest treasure. And the last song we sang, the opening verse, says this so very well. Second line of that first verse says, there is no more for heaven left to give. God gave us his son, Jesus Christ. There was no more, no greater that all of heaven could give than that. And he gave his son to die for all who would believe in him. If God did not spare his son, friend, if God did not spare his son, why would we ever doubt that he would give us anything else he's promised? That's the logic that Paul's operating with. That is one of the most practical things you could ever take with you. And, and we'll get there in just a moment, but let me just illustrate this from an experience in my personal life. I was trying to think of something that, you know, out of human experience that would even come within a million miles of this, but something that happened a couple of years ago was brought to mind. I met, I met a man whose wife had become suddenly very, very sick uh, at a young age, late 40s, they're both late 40s. Um, it was a life-threatening illness, and they both had these massively successful, promising careers, and hers was ended 
because of her sickness, abruptly, suddenly, done. As I got to know them, I learned to my surprise that his career had ended because he had chosen to leave it to come home and be with and care for his wife. And I had lunch with them one day, and I was sitting out on their back patio. I was actually just eating with him. She was inside. And as we were eating, I heard her call from inside and and called to him for, for something she needed help with. Now, do you think that I had any doubt that he would respond to her call for help in that moment? No. Why not? Because I knew intuitively that he would delight to do the small everyday things for her because he had given up all of the most precious things in his life for her already. This is the rock-solid logic that the gospel gives you that confirms that God is always for you. But in the gospel, the one who gave everything is no mere fellow human. As wonderful as this, as this man is. The one we're talking about here in Romans 8, this is the God with the power to bring his will to pass in all things for all who love him and are called according to his purpose. Friend, how for you is he? He gave his only son. God's gift of his son is his word to us that says, there is no more for you than I could possibly be. You cannot imagine a God who is more for you than God. An old Puritan theologian, John Flavel, said, How is it imaginable that God should withhold, after this, anything from his people? It's not imaginable. And if you believe this, you won't be able to imagine a God who is against you, or anything that can successfully be against you, so long as he's for you. So, let me just close on two, two encouragements, two points of, of application here in this second point. And, and they're not alliterated, they're not fancy, they're not super memorable, but write, write them down and really think on, on these things. One, learn to see the gospel as your greatest good. Gosh, we get so off track. We, we, we become invested in our misguided notions of, of what is good in our mind when we fail to see the gospel as our greatest good. When we fail to see the wonder and and the the awe-inspiring quality of what Jesus did for us on the cross. When we look at that and say, ho-hum, yeah, I know that already. When it becomes familiar to us. Learn to (laughs) refuse to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's giving of his own son for you that you might be forgiven and adopted into his family and conformed into the image of his son and one day glorified to be with him forever. Learn to see that as your greatest good. As your absolute, unequivocally, 
greatest good. Romans 8.32 is one of the ways that you can always apply the gospel to real life. And that brings us to the last, second to last application point. And I would encourage you with this. Number two, take Romans 8.32 with you wherever you go. If you haven't memorized this verse, memorize it. If you haven't memorized Romans 8, 28 through 32, memorize it. Maybe just memorize the whole chapter. But this verse, in terms of practically helpful theology, (laughs) you'd be hard-pressed to find anything that's going to be more regularly helpful to you in the midst of even the most intense trials. To be reminded that if God did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give me all things he's promised? That's right, yes. Yeah. He's going to be faithful to deliver to me what he's promised. I know he will because he gave me Jesus. That's my assurance. That's going to ground me. Romans 8.32 is like training wheels to help you to learn how to live a gospel-centered life. But it's like training wheels with jetpacks. If you ever thought, gosh, how, how do I live with, with the gospel being my lens for how I see things? Start with this verse. Train yourself to live with a gospel centrality by being reminded that God did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for me. Hallelujah! And take it with you wherever you go. God's gift of his son is your rock-solid confidence that he is for you. And I'll pray in just a moment, but I want to read the third verse of the song we're going we're gonna to close with. And uh, worship band, if you'd like to come up now. But just think about these words, especially this, this third line. Oh, what grace that you would see me as your child and as your friend. Here's that line. Safe, secure in you forever. I pour out my praise again. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you that you are a God who's for us in all things at all times. And thank you that you've given us the assurance of your son, not just the assurance of your son, but you've given your son as a gift himself. We're safe, secure in you forever because of him. And so we pour out our praise to you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.